the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Hello everybody, I am Cat Bailey and welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast with me today. As always, my lovely co-host Nadia Oxford. Hello, how's everybody doing? Thank you for joining us. Indeed. And yes, we're doing it live again, Nadia. It's happening. It's happening. Woo! Jazz hands. <laughs> Somebody better turn that into a gif, I gotta say. <laughs> And Toothless is just like, okay, whatever. As always, we talk about RPGs, big and small, Western and Eastern. We love the genre so very, very much. And we got quite a bit to cover today, Nadia, because we had a RPG-centric Nintendo Direct. We did. There was a lot of good stuff there last night for RPGs. Yes, we. Yes, there was. And we saw a little bit more Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Mm-hmm. We saw some Project Octopath Traveler. Which is looking really good. So good. My God. Ever, that's like been the talk of the internet it ever really since. Yes. yes. People have been just saying, well, even people that I wouldn't normally expect to be talking very much about RPGs have been saying how much they really enjoyed Project Octopath Traveler. Oh, really? That's, that's awesome to hear. So if you don't like RPGs that much, well, first of all, I don't know why you're watching this podcast, but <laughs> you should definitely give Octopath Traveler a try if that's the case. Yes, you absolutely should. Phil Kohler, I mean, he likes RPGs, but Phil Kohler gave it the little hard eyes. Aw, that's sweet. If you do, If you do hard eyes, you know that it's good. Yes, that's true. That's like the highest, that's like as high as you can go with, emo- with emoji rating scale. It's like, the, it's like we've come full circle with the Game Pro, <laughs> except we use emojis now instead of the exploding heads. And by the way, we are doing this live, as I may have already mentioned, and we've got people already in the chat room, Nadia. Yay. Hello to Johnny Pants 7 Hello to Casey206. Hello to McQueo. Yes, uh, hello to all of you guys. It's good to have you on the show, and hopefully we get some more people. Yay. If you want to talk to us, if you have some thoughts, if you have some comments, put them into the chat and we may read them on the show and uh, respond to them because, after all, that's half the fun of doing a live show, Nadia. That's why we're here. That and, and, and live cats. Yes. <laughs> Nadia's just showing off at this point. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure another one of my cats will, will show up eventually. Oh, and Casey206 mentions that you're wearing a fox uh, shirt, which is totally true. Yes, I am. I'm wearing this, the, I don't know if you uh, read Olglaf.com, the comic. I don't know what that is. It's a really filthy comic, but it's really hilarious and fantastic. And um, yeah, there's a fox on there uh, called infor- informally known as the Derp Fox. And he, <laughs> he kind of has that look on his face, doesn't he? Nadia uh, reading dark, uh, sorry, Nadia reading uh, d- very dirty comics. Tell me more. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm s- this is literally the most surprising news that I've heard all day. Nadia, never. No, I, I am pure as the driven snow. Uh, McQuayle, by the way, says uh, is asking if we booted up the Etrian Odyssey 5 demo yet. I'm sorry to say that I have not had a chance to play. I've been too busy playing Project Octopath Traveler. Yeah, so far I've been sticking to Octopath Traveler, so uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Poor Etrian Odyssey 5. <laughs> All right. 
a little later, and this is not going to be on the live podcast. I am editing it in after the fact. We are going to have a conversation with David Craddock, who is releasing a new book about the Apple II, in which he talks a whole bunch about the RPGs from that era. And even if you're not into CRPGs, I strongly recommend that you listen to it because they're they're so important to your roots. And from JRPGs, JRPGs came from this time, from this primordial ooze of the Apple II. So it totally did. And the Apple II was my first computer. We really? Had, oh yeah, we had a bunch in uh, in our school. Uh, that's how old I am. And one of the first things I had to do on that computer was uh, we read, like, you ever hear of four- Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom? I do. I, I yeah. remember that one, yeah. <laughs> so we read that in class, and we had to write, like, a story about, like, Fudge and, and Peter. And so I wrote about them, like, going to the mall, and, and tr- Fudge trashed the mall. And uh, then Apple II ate my story <laughs> at the end. <laughs> the f- my first pains, my first writer's pangs. I spent a lot of time obsessing over the header image that I would use for my story, the story title, because the whatever word processor we were using allowed us to kind of come up with graphics and everything. And that was obviously the most important thing when you were seven years old. Oh, man, I, I can't remember what we used for a word processor. I do remember using Claris Works in high school because we had Macs. So that's what I wrote a lot of my early stuff on. Well, now that we've hilariously dated ourselves, uh, <laughs> let's let's kind of get to the main topic, which is, I, I don't think we should bury the lead here, Nadia. Let's talk about Project Octopath Traveler. Yes, let's. Which, the demo came out on the Nintendo Switch yesterday. It was a surprise drop mm-hmm. right after the Nintendo Direct. Naturally, Nadia and I immediately went and downloaded it. Nadia, first impressions. I, I really enjoyed it. It's very much like... I've, I've had people tell me it's like... Um, I, I forget if they said a saga game. But it reminded me a lot more of Bravely Default. And like kind of a combination of Bravely Default and that Final Fantasy VI sprite work. Just much more gorgeous. I think they called it, what, 2D HD or something? Yes. Whatever they called it. Which doesn't great. even make sense because God knows it's not the first ever game to have HD sprites. No, but it, it does still have... In fact, it has that almost that old-fashioned aesthetic that I really love. You don't get that so much anymore um, because sprites are really HD now. It's so ironic they're calling it this. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. How, how did you like it? I was pretty impressed by the look and feel of it. <clears throat> and it just goes to show how even though graphics aren't everything, they can just do a, a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Really good art can do a whole lot to really get you engaged in the game. And even though it's pretty simple, all things considered, I mean, the sprites, the sprite characters are actually not that detailed. They're yeah. not that well animated, all things considered. The the world looks just interesting to the eye. Exactly. The way that it almost looks like a, a kind of a pop-up thing going yes. on, uh, like almost like a diorama, I yeah. want to say. Yeah, it's like they're inside a diorama just is really appealing to the eye. And of course, it looks really good on that Nintendo Switch screen. It does. And uh, it's funny, the enemy sprites actually remind me of uh, Bahamut Lagoon. Oh, yeah. In that they're just really big? And that they're they're big and they have that sort of that color and, and size to them and kind of limited motion. It reminds me of kind of what they did with Final Fantasy VI and a lot of those 60-mid RPGs mm-hmm. in that you had the main characters, oddly enough, being kind of not very detailed at all. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of small, but the enemies being extremely detailed and extremely yes. big as you're yes. fighting them. I, I like, always thought that was kind of funny. 
Yeah, especially um, I kind of got that shock when you go up against uh, the boss of, uh, what's his name, the, the Knight's uh, demo. He's mm-hmm. a huge hulking thing, and you're this little tiny squishy guy. And I'm like, oh, yes. man, that brings back some memories. Yeah, because so you're so there are two demos because there are eight characters, mm-hmm. each of them with their own stories and kind of their own special mechanics and that kind of thing. And they uh, and the two that were available in the demo were Primrose the dancer, mm-hmm. who her story is kind of like she's a dancer. There's a a guy who kind of reminds me, I, I guess, of like Stromboli from Pinocchio, who's just. <laughs> A real jerk. He's like, dance more, girl. Like, I'm in charge of you and everything. Um, And she she leans more toward magic attacks and that kind of thing. And then you have, I I think his name is Olmeric. Olmeric. Yeah. He is the knight. And he uses more physical attacks. Um, I'm not sure Project Octopath Traveler has a party system or if it's just single characters. I'm getting the impression that... um, it is a party, uh, and mm-hmm. you will meet up with everyone because, especially given how the the battle system is, where each character or each enemy rather is weak to a certain weapon type, and you can only wield so many weapons at once. Uh, like uh, the knight Ulbrich, was that his name? Poor guy. Yes, Ulmeric. Ulmeric. He has a sword and a spear, and some I noticed some of the enemies you come up against they're weak to either or, but I haven't found one that was weak to both the sword and the spear. So there's got to be someone you travel with who has that magical mm. weapon. Yes, uh, I, I suppose so. And or or just over time you begin to upgrade your own weapons mm-hmm. and perhaps be able to customize your character a lot more. Mm-hmm. That could be, but I really do hope you have uh, a party because uh, I love the battle system, but I could see battles getting really slow if you don't have other people helping you out. Mm. I, I think that it was just there to kind of show us the basics of the battle system, mm-hmm. where the the general thrust <laughs> is that okay. you uh, hit their weak spot, and that stuns them, kind of like in Persona. Yeah. And then you can do a burst gauge, and you can spend up to three burst points. Mm-hmm to be able to do a, a whole bunch of damage. And it, the the pyrotechnics of it look really good. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It's I, a really satisfying to, like you break an enemy's weak point by using the right weapon and by whittling down their shield gauge. And mm-hmm. once you break it, it, it just feels really good, especially when you're yes. up against like a really tough enemy. And then you follow it up with like, you have skills and you can follow it up with like, say like a sword thrust and you charge that up and it just, wipes out the enemy because of course once they're broken their defense drops a lot yes so it's all about learning like how to juggle breaking defenses versus going in for the kill because when an enemy is stunned it can't attack you it loses that turn which can save your butt so some initial impressions from the peanut gallery over here mars all day says first impression remake final fantasy 6 with the octopath engine yes i could deal with that Yes, I, I could totally deal with that because I think that you wouldn't lose the essence of the look of Final Fantasy VI, but that it would immediately just kind of really pop out in the eye. And I would yeah. I would really appreciate that. Um, and of course, the improved pyrotechnics would be really nice as well, oh, right? Man, can you imagine Ultima? Ooh, yes. <laughs> That'd go. be really good. Um, uh, Marqueo wants to know. Marqueo wants to know: Is the Octopath engine better looking than the Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection engine? Uh, I think Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection might actually have the advantage. 
Yeah, Final Fantasy IV Complete Collection, I was about to say, even if they didn't use uh, the Octopath Traveler engine for Final Fantasy VI, I would still, like, kill someone, not literally, but you know what I mean, (laughs) to get a game like Final Fantasy VI done in that engine, just because it is so nice. I I love that, the way that game looks. Uh, Kuninino wants to know, uh, how fast and how frequent is the combat? Uh, I think that really depends, like... Um, some enemies take more time than others to break down their shields, and of course, higher level enemies take more time. They have higher shield stats, but um, I found that that battles that were giving me a hard time fairly early in the game, like by the time I was done with the demo, I was just like, done. So, random enc- it is random encounters, but I, it doesn't like bother you so much, at least not from the demo, of course, I could change once the final game is out, but uh, I found... I found battles to be well-paced for the most part. Uh, boss mm-hmm. battles, the boss battle, um, I had a hard time with that at first because I wasn't really paying attention. And the uh, even though it warned me that a big attack was coming, I didn't defend myself, so I had to do it all over again. So that was a pain in the butt because I had to go through the story thing again, and I really hope they change that for the uh, the final release. But um, they're, they're not like over in a second, but they, they are quite quickly paced. It, it, a lot of it also has to do with how well you learn how to use your, um, your charge attacks. Uh, I warning huge enemy a huge enemy is approaching fast is what I thought when you said that a large enemy is on the approach but (laughs) I always like that when you're fighting a boss in an RPG that you have to start thinking Mm -hmm. about the strategy a lot more it speaks to kind of the depth of the system and if it's like how that is at the very beginning then that's great yeah by the way uh the one of the benefits of streaming this live which by the way Hello to all of you people in here. We got a nice little crowd in the chat oh, right now, Nadia. Nice. I'm glad to see that. Um, that. Is that they can correct us in real time? <laughs> and no Monkey Dog, Monkey Dog 189 says that you can get a party in Octopath Traveler after you beat a story. You can find the other character and go to a bonus dungeon. Oh, oh, okay, that's interesting. It reminds me a little yes. bit of uh, Dragon Quest IV in that regard. Then, yes. Uh, so one observation, one more observation that I want to make, maybe this is a little mean of me, but I was saying that on Twitter, I was saying, God, I really wish Lost Fear looked half this good because <laughs> it would ju- go just, I feel like th- those games by Tokyo RPG Factory, they're not without merit. Yeah. They have yeah. decent soundtrack. They have an okay battle system that, you know, borrows heavily from Chrono Trigger and that kind of thing. But I just can't get past the art style. It's so drab and so boring. No, I and it really mean. affects my engagement with it. I think because uh, uh, the the games that you're talking about by Tokyo RPG Factory, they are trying very hard to emulate Chrono Trigger, and of course they have their own spin on things. But you can tell very clearly what they're based upon. And if that's the case, I think it would really help a lot to have that those retro-style graphics. Just I know that, as you say, it's shallow, but I, I totally understand where you're coming from at the same time. Yeah, I, I understand that they are kind of, they have a limited budget. This is mm-hmm. the absolute best you can do. But uh, Project Octopath Traveler, I, I don't know how much effort it takes to make these backgrounds, to make these character sprites and everything. But it sure seems like they could kind of, it sure seems like it's not a tremendous outlay of resources. I mean, they're not making freaking Fallout 4 here. They're yeah. not making a AAA game. It's kind of a retro-styled game that looks really nice and stylish on the Nintendo Switch, and it just goes to show that that extra little bit of style can go so, so far. 
Well, it's like there, to be honest, there are these tiny indie teams who are doing the same thing. So I'm sure it's doable. I understand they have a budget to go by, but I, I'm not there. I'm not fly on the wall, so I can't say exactly. I have a cure. I have a question really quickly. Are you playing on the TV or are you playing on the Nintendo Switch uh, screen? I'm playing on Nintendo Switch screen. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I did too, because it didn't strike me as a game that would look very good on the TV. And I think that this is the direction that we're going to continue to see from the Nintendo Switch is mm-hmm. developers smelling an opportunity <laughs> to cut corners as much as possible. And I'm not <laughs> saying that the Octopath Traveler people are cutting corners. I'm saying that they are gearing it toward the smaller screen, though, that they're gearing it more for the portable side. Yeah, although I wonder if anyone in the, in the audience... Uh over to our audience. Have you guys played it on the big screen? Let us know how it looked. Indeed. So Project Octopath Traveler coming out soon. Or it's coming out next year, I believe. Yeah, 18. Yeah. When, on, yeah. when they were unveiling Soon it, enough. Uh, yeah, when they were showing it off, uh, I said on Slack, oh man, I hope they say this is out today. <laughs> it has a great pedigree. It actually kind of reminds me of some of the more experimental PlayStation RPGs. Mm-hmm. Uh I like the battle system. I think that everything about this game kind of screams winner. And yeah. I cannot wait to play it. It's been getting probably the most hype out of everything that's come out of this Nintendo Direct. Yeah. And you know what? When I saw it, like they showed like a, a very quick glance of it uh, in the uh, Nintendo Switch preview, the first one uh, back in January. And I said, wow, I don't know what that is exactly, but it looks really great. It just goes to show that the... The, the the market is so crowded now and there's mm-hmm. so many games that if you don't stand out you die that's yeah. just how it is right you gotta you gotta catch somebody's eye and you have literally less than a second <laughs> to make a first impression because that second is where people go oh or eh. yeah, and then they the second they go eh, they totally written you off yeah yeah unfortunately they're like a zillion very uh deserving games on steam that are being completely ignored as we speak because they aren't even getting half of a second look they're just getting a half of a first look and then just discarded it's sad actually it kind of and i'm part of the problem nadia (laughs) so am i but didn't we talk about this on uh i think it was our flagship podcast where the Switch is such an ideal machine for this kind of thing because since it doesn't have a lot of AAA titles coming up for it yet and maybe it never will, other than Bethesda surprised us a little bit yesterday. But um, it just gives indies a chance to really stand out and, you know, get a little bit more time in the limelight versus PlayStation 4, Steam, Xbox. We might delve into this a little more on the US Gamer Podcast, but I, I got to wonder, is the Nintendo Switch having the strongest first year of any console ever? Well, there's a lot of games that I want to play on it, and I haven't had time because there's just so many, so... It's up there. I mean, yes, a lot of them are ports and retro updates and that kind of thing. But God, I have really not been wanting for games to play on this thing. No, I haven't. And I mean, after this Nintendo Direct, we see there's a whole bunch more coming. I mean, Mario Odyssey looks fantastic. I know Mm. you were a little bit cold on it at first, but... Uh, I'm coming back around to it. I was a little cold on Breath of the Wild, too. We all know how that turned out. Yeah, that's true. Um, I got to say, someone posted a, a, a comparison picture of like what we saw at E3 versus what we saw yesterday for Odyssey, and just this polish that's gone to the graphics since is really impressive. Yes, I, I'm happy. I'm sure it's going to be great. 
uh, looks like so much fun. And I can't get over that, uh, the song, the You're My Superstar song. Uh, it's been in my, I've been singing it all freaking day. Every time I, it gets out of my head, it's back. Thanks, Pauline. Yeah, the second I, Nintendo Direct was finished, I was writing up the recap, and I just go over to YouTube, and I just had that stupid song on loop because <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> Speaking of the Nintendo Direct, other things that we saw, uh, we saw just a little bit more Pokemon Ultra Sun, Ultra Moon info, primarily centering around the stuff that you'll get if you pre-order or you play the other games there's the new pokeball uh 2ds xl if you're into that thing i suppose and they uh talked about the kind of the bonuses that you would get if you would pre-order you'd get like a rock rough uh and if you play ultra sun you get the fire fang and if you get ultra moon you get the thunder fang which they're really trying to make an effort to make rock rough a little more relevant and if you play and if you get Pokemon Gold and Silver, which is coming out very soon on the Switch eShop, uh, or sorry, the 3DS, 3DS eShop, shop. you will get a Celebi, which is a really nice little gift for people who are collecting legendaries. And actually, somebody was wondering on the stream, it was All's Gaming stuff, was wondering if we were going to play Gold and Silver on Virtual Console before Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Uh, what are your thoughts, Nadia? I don't know if I'll have time. Um, plus, I've yeah. played Heart Gold and Soul Silver, which I really loved. And mm. not to disparage Gold and Silver, but going back is just—I don't see much of a point. But yeah, I mean, I think that the game holds up just fine, mm-hmm. and uh, as Red and Blue showed, it can still be very relevant in this day and age, especially since that it has the connections to it has the hooks into the current games. So it's a good way to go back and. Yes get some monsters that you might have already missed and plus gold and silver is one of the most beloved pokemon games ever made yeah it's fantastic and i think iwata is one of the reasons it exists in the way it does he was yes. one who made kanto fit in there yes <laughs> i i have very fond memories of playing gold and silver even though i kind of came back i came around to it a little later i will say that crystal i prefer crystal just because it has um suicune I like as uh, like it has an extra Suicune story, and Suicune is one of my absolute favorite legendaries. And also, it had animated graphics, and you could play as a girl. Yep, yep. Crystal was a really a, a nice little package. Yes. Uh, also, in this Nintendo Switch, uh, Nintendo Direct, uh, we got a, a, a heavier glance at Xenoblade Chronicles Two, and uh, I have my own thoughts, but I'm kind of curious what you think, Nadia. Well, the thing I loved about the original Xenoblade Chronicles is how it, you, it took place on the backs of those big Titan things and the fact that there's, like, more of them. I'm like, hey, sign me up. And I love how... I know it was kind of droning on and on with that, like, grandpa dragon rock thing, but I just love the fact that there's this hero living on this this dragon rock that, like, is his mm. landlord, quote-unquote. I just thought that was really cute. Yes, uh, so he's living on... It was a Titan. Yeah, a little and- Titan kind of a little titan it's a cute little dragon island and yeah i mean i i sort of imagined being like that when i was like eight right yeah i i imagined that my bed was a boat <laughs> in the middle of a vast ocean yeah and i would pile all of my toys and all of my and all of my dolls and stuffed animals and everything onto kind of my little ark <laughs> and the the world around me was either the ocean or the sky or whatever. Yeah. And this is kind of what it reminds me of, actually. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like games that kind of make me think back to the, the, the little games I used to play as a kid. I think that's one reason why Pokemon sort of appealed to me so much in the first place is 
I loved I loved cartoons and shows like I don't know if you remember like Wuzzles and Popples mm. and just the weird fantasy twisted creatures. Mm-hmm. So I, I like stuff like that. Looking at the actual graphics, it's really pretty. It is, it is a, a nice pretty looking game. Looking game. Yeah, uh, people have been kind of ragging on the character models, which look like frankly cut rate character models from Tales of Symphonia, mm-hmm. and I. Th- think that's fair because having good character models is the first step toward being an appealing game yeah but man those those environments look really good yeah and also if you look at the the original game's characters from a distance you think ooh, they're all lame except for dunban who's awesome but uh, <laughs> they all grew on us so what is it with you and dunban he's hot oh <laughs> sorry i asked <laughs> i mean duh cat <laughs> duh I I really liked the look of it. it the music seemed to be on point. Music's it fantastic. reminded me of the original Xenoblade Chronicles and then Xenoblade Chronicles also had those vast open spaces. Mm-hmm. They were talking about how you're traveling from Titan to Titan, which is really awesome. Yes, cuz in the original you were on there were the two gods interlocked and then you eventually traveled to the other god. Yeah, yeah, the Mechonis and the Bionis. But in this one you have very large sort of titan things that i guess are flying around or something like that that you're traveling to each with their own environment yeah they seem to be like walking through this cloud world is really interesting but it i mean it looks great and then the battle system mostly seems to be on point there's kind of a pokemon vibe going on there Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so i'll be honest i wasn't paying too much attention to the battle (laughs) the battle thing no you gotta pay attention come on (laughs) you are the systems person not me I'm just oh, like, really? uh huh. I'll get it. When so, do you I get not it. care about battle systems at all? Not very much. Um, I I pick it up and I learn it, and if I like it, I'm like, oh man, this is awesome. This is cool. I really appreciate what they've done oh, here. Wow. But if it's if it's boring, it doesn't really affect how I play the game. Like as long as the rest of the game's okay. I have, for me, the battle system is what it's all about. If it doesn't have a good battle system, then I get bored really <laughs> quickly. But I mean, we've had this discussion before. Battle systems are just a means to an end for you. Oh, pretty much. Yeah, 100%. Everything else. It's all about everything else, like the graphics, the sound, the story, the characters. That's what I care about most, first and foremost. So we've talked a little bit about Xenoblade Chronicles uh, 2, and we both are looking forward to it. It's coming out in December. December 1st. December 1st, and I think that is just going to be another one of those games that's going to really keep me busy on the Nintendo Switch because uh, as Kuni Nino was just saying in the chat, he, in his opinion, only the Dreamcast has had a stronger first year than the Nintendo Switch. Poor Dreamcast. Uh, R.I.P., right? <laughs> R.I.P. I, mean, I certainly loved my Dreamcast back in the day. Uh, one last thing that we saw from that Nintendo Direct stream, we saw a whole bunch of RPGs coming from Atlas. Mm-hmm. On the Nintendo 3DS, uh, the Etrian Odyssey 5 demo dropped, which I'm sorry, we did not end up playing that one, as I said. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I kind of got overshadowed a little bit, probably because, I mean, Etrian Odyssey 5, let's be honest, is kind of a niche thing, right? Yeah, and like I said, I would like to give it a try, but then Octopath Traveler came out, and I'm like, oh no, I forgot about Etrian Odyssey 5, (laughs) oh dear me. It happens. Uh, also, next year we're getting the Radiata or not Radiata story, Radiant Historia. Confusing it with Radiata stories. Radiant Historia, the for the Nintendo 3DS, which is coming out next year. And then we also got confirmation that Alliance Alive, the people 
from the studio behind The Legend of Legacy is coming out in the U.S. as well. So if you don't know much about Alliance Alive, I believe it's already out in Japan. Uh, it was being teased way back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first impression, like looking at the videos and, the, and everything of that game, was that it looked a little bit like uh, e- uh, Ever Oasis, like in terms of just the graphical style and that yeah. kind of thing. Very cutesy, cutie dolls and that kind of yeah. thing. Does that style ap- appeal to you, Nadia? It can. Like, I, I really liked Ever Oasis, but then there was, I look at The Secret of Mana, uh, that kind of has that same style that's coming out, the remake for, uh, was it coming out for Switch? or No, it was just PS4 and Vita. And I was like, um, this kind of works? So, I don't know. It, I can't distinguish what works for me and what doesn't in that style, but sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But was that the game that Matt was saying... Holy or Mike was saying, "Holy crap, this is huge in China." Or was that another game that they showed? No, that was the MOBA. That was okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. The MOBA is apparently so big that people that there are actually laws requiring <laughs> wow. that kids can only play kids between a certain age can only play like two hours a day. Wow, really? Oh man, that's how you know when yes. a game's huge when you have a law around it, <laughs> like Dragon yeah. Quest in Japan. The government apparently is like super concerned about gaming addiction anyway, and mm-hmm. they have like really messed up things like boot camps wow. where kids are getting sent away to basically go through military style boot camp to try and get them to detox from video games <laughs> and everything. So, game detox, yes. And now this game is coming out on the Nintendo Switch for some reason. Why not? <laughs> because why not? Uh, so I will say that my first impression was that Alliance Alive looked a little eh, cut rate. I'm not going to lie. Like I said, I'm a shallow person, and that is how it goes. But um, not a ton to say about Alliance Alive, except that it's, like I said, Le- Legend of Legacy was... Uh, it had its it. fans, I suppose, but it got kind of middling reviews, and I don't expect that this is going to be appealing to much more than the hardcore set mm-hmm. um if you want to if you want to contradict me in the chat comments go ahead um <laughs> they're mostly talking about the dreamcast in there <laughs> i'm not i'm not surprised at all oh poor uh, dreamcast i never you know what i had a dreamcast but i mm-hmm. only had like a few games for it uh, Sonic Adventure mostly, and I mm. think we had some Sonic board game Mario Party ripoff. I forget what it was called. My bond, my partner and I bonded over Soul Calibur and Marvel vs. Capcom Two. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, Johnny Pants Seven says, by the way, Legend of Legacy was something of a bland game too, mm. and uh, but they are hearing that the Alliance Alive has better mechanics, which oh, okay. you don't care about anyway, though. No, I don't. But uh, I'm trying to think, Legend of Legacy, like. That has nothing to do with the Legend of Legaea series, does it? No, it was a totally different thing. Oh, okay. it, they just meant it to be kind of a new RPG that was playing on the classics that you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, so s- some things about the battle system, by the way. Battles have an awaking element where you can suddenly get inspired with a new technique or your status goes up. The stronger the enemies you battle, the faster your growth rate. There are also elements to further raise your growth rate. And your party can consist of up to five characters, which I think is the perfect number, by the way. That's a Four good is too small. Five is per- Six maybe is a little too big, yeah. a little unwieldy. Five is perfect. That's one thing I always liked about Final Fantasy IV was it was usually stopped at five. Like, it just had that 
mm. nice balance to it. Oh, and there are also formations as well as a guild system for party strengthening. Oh, boy. All right. Last thing before we move on. Nadia, you've been playing Monster Hunter Stories. And people have been comparing it to Pokemon or something. But you are surprised by this because you don't think that it has anything in common with Pokemon. It has very little common in Pokemon other than, like, you know, kind of raising your own monsters to fight with you. But, uh... You can only have one monster fight with you at a time. Maybe that'll change later in the game, but I don't think it will. It shows no sign of changing. But it's not like you even, like, fight wild monsters and capture them the way you do in Pokemon. What you do is you raid their dens. You pick up an egg. And the egg can be either something really lame or it might be something cool you don't really know until you get it out of the den. You hatch it. And hey, there's your monster. Um, It's very... I don't know how to describe it, because I'm not, like, a huge Monster Hunter fan, but I I like the series, and I like this game. It's very cute. It's very fun, although I think our friend Bob Mackey was saying how much better it is than Pokemon, and I'm like, dude, it's nothing like Pokemon, number one. Number two, it's a little more juvenile than Pokemon, especially, um, we've talked in the past about how uh, Pokemon Sun and Moon has, like, I wouldn't really call it mature themes, but it has themes that adults can really relate to. And so far, I haven't seen any of that going on in Monster Hunter stories. It's just, like, boy goes on an adventure, meets, like, the Sundari girl, and, you know, changes monsters, and he wants to be the very best, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> so that's where the Pokemon connections are coming that's in. That's where the Pokemon Like, no one is. ever was. Like, no one ever was, yeah. Although, th- he comes from a society where, like, people raise monsters instead of hunting them, and that's very controversial. But he still goes out and he beats the crap out of all these monsters, so I <laughs> don't know what they're talking about. He raises the monsters? Well, the the village, like, you know, raises these monsters to kind of, like, ride on them, and they do tasks together, but they still kill monsters. Like, they still hunt them, but they kind of say how controversial they are, and because they, unlike everyone else, we, we care for monsters, we take care of them, we raise them, and everyone else kills them, And but you're killing monsters anyway. <laughs> you're still doing and that's it. Always, and that's always been the thing with Monster Hunter, is that they make no bones whatsoever about the fact that you are killing those monsters. Those monsters are dying. And you're eating you see them. its corpse laying on the ground. Yep. And you're going in and you are cutting it open and taking the meat. It's <laughs> you actually, are. Bob wrote a really great piece about how hard it is as a vegetarian for him to play Monster Hunter because he's like, ah, uh, it, it, and it really like threw me off too. I, I didn't want to cut those monsters open. They were kind of, I mean, sure, they were big and terrifying, but come on, like that monster has every bit of right to live too. It's like, it doesn't get grisly in, in Monster Hunter stories, of course, because for a younger audience but um it's still kind of kind of weird like that's one thing i always thought was weird about monster hunter and i'm not a vegetarian it's like this guy's this monster is hanging out minding its own business oh let's let's eat it (laughs) monster hunter stories son there's a time in every breeder's life that they have to understand that it's time to kill the monster today you are a hunter hands them an axe now go (laughs) kill your favorite monster and become a man but I want to hug the monsters. You ever seen that gif of the little kid trying to hit the Spider-Man pinata, but he like starts crying and hugs it instead? Oh. <laughs> so he didn't want to kill the... Spider-Man. That's me and the monsters. It reminds me you. of Charlotte's Web, to be honest. Uh, the, the girl who's raising the pig saves the little runt pig from... Oh, Wilbur. Saves Wilbur from being killed and then ends up raising it. Yes. In yeah. a darker ending, they hand her an axe and goes, Sorry, Wilbur, it's time to go. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a seriously an alternate ending that was planned, but man, that would be amazing. Actually, that'd be terrible, yeah. but amazing. Uh, 
And of course, the chat channel is mentioning that Bob never really gave Pokemon another chance. Sorry, Bob, we love you. But yeah, yeah Bob, Bob, Bob is just not a Pokemon guy. He's not, but he was saying on Twitter how, oh, the tutorial for Sun and Moon, it never ended. And I'm playing Monster Hunter stories, and I'm like, man, these people never shut up. Like, it's the same thing. Yeah. The thing with, I mean, Bob loves Monster Hunter stories, or Monster Hunter in general. Mm-hmm. Like, he is Mr. Monster Hunter. He actually pinged me and said, you know, I don't, I'm not really writing about video games right now because I'm too busy uh, doing Talking Simpsons, which, by the way, I was on Talking Simpsons not too long ago. Hey, hey. The newest episode's coming up, uh, Lisa on Ice, the hockey episode. Oh, I was that's totally a good on episode. that one. Yeah, oh, I love that one. We love but, that one. So a little shout out to them. But he's a little too busy talking Simpsons at the moment. But he said that he totally would write about Monster Hunter because he loves Monster Hunter. He is the Monster so Hunter. So I think game. he's a little more predisposed to playing Monster Hunter stories. So my impression of Monster Hunter stories is that it's kind of a gateway game for younger kids who are maybe a little too young for big kid Monster Hunter, but, you know, get them started early. Yeah, and and, and it is very cute. I really like the fact that you can, like, you hatch these monsters, right? And then you kind of ride on them, and they have different abilities when you ride on them. And, of course, some of them go fast. Like, you kind of get these, like, raptor-like monsters that run fast. And you get, like, a bear that goes boom, 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 boom. And then you get, like, you know, just... I, I just got a shark thing that, like, I'm assuming will go into the water and swim. But on land, it's just, like, boom, 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 boom. It's just a clumsy piece of crap. But it's a shark. Hmm. It's a shark. <laughs> it doesn't go particularly shark. deep, though. Like, it keeps it pretty simple, all things considered. Yeah, I need the shark jabberjaw. <laughs> the shark, jab- shark jabberjaw. <laughs> all right. We are going to move on to reader comments. But first... We're going to have that interview with David Craddock. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. I am here with David Craddock, uh, who is returned to the podcast for the first time in a while. I don't remember the last time I had you on, David. I think it was a couple summers ago. We talked about uh, roguelikes and old school RPGs. It's kind of a running theme. Yeah, I mean, that is a thing that you have covered in the past. Uh, if I recall correctly, you had written a book called Dungeon Hacks, which was just, if you really want to understand the roots of RPGs and gaming in general, if you really want to understand how important RPGs are to just the birth of the entire medium, then you should read that book because it is it was a really illuminating and really eye-opening book now the reason david's back on here now is because he just wrote another book and it's called breakout how the apple II launched the pc gaming revolution and gotta go for those catchy those catchy (laughs) subtitles (laughs) and this one is a bit more general it covers a lot of different things it covers oregon trail and it covers a pinball construction set and a lot of other games that came out around that time, but RPGs being ubiquitous and so very, very important to the genesis of the media. He also talks about that. Specifically, you interviewed it, interviewed the folks behind Wizardry and talked a lot about the kind of history of that game and also Richard Garriott and the rise of Ultimate Four. Yes. Yes, even um, <clears throat> Bard's Tale and Wasteland. I kind of had to draw a line. Out of all the genres I wanted to cover, I probably could have done a book just on <laughs> role-playing games on Apple II. Yes. So tell me a little bit. One of the first things that you said in your intro was 
you compared it to the South Park episode, Simpsons did it. Yeah. Where you were saying South Park did it, or sorry, Apple II did it. Like Apple II did all of it first. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it's it's almost just fill in the blank. I mean, you can almost you can almost trace every genre back to uh, the Apple II. Um, <clears throat> obviously, certain games like adventure games uh, were conceived on even earlier platforms, such as mainframes. That was Colossal Cave Adventure. But the Apple II um, <clears throat> really was kind of the primordial ooze. Uh, I, I know that's one of your favorite terms, so I broke it out for you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it, it really it really was kind of a, a staging ground for so many, so many not only role-playing games, but genres. I mean, if you, you know, today, I don't think that the do-it-yourself type of game such as Super Mario Maker or Little Big Planet has ever been hugely popular, but you can trace that back to Bill Budge's pinball construction set. Uh, you can <clears throat> RPGs. I think oh, pretty much everything, all of their trappings to Dungeons and Dragons. But if you want to talk about uh, video game RPGs, console or computer RPGs, that goes back to to wizardry and and the Calabeth. Even even tropes such as parties, uh, turn-based combat, uh, all that sort of thing um, started on Apple II games, such as such as wizardry and the Calabeth and, and Ultima. And one of the things that I found pretty interesting was that you drew a connection between the Plato mainframes. Am, am I right? The, the yes. those university mainframes where people used to program games, and the Apple II was a really exciting prospect because for the first time, people didn't have to <laughs> sign up for time on those mainframes. Am I right? Correct. Um, you know, even uh, so, Andrew Greenberg came up with the first uh, the first prototype of the game that became Wizardry, and he got a lot of his ideas not only from playing D and D with his friends, but from playing RPGs on Play-Doh terminals at his university, and that that was the only place he could play them. You not only had to to go through time sharing and and things of that nature, but uh, you had to go to school to have fun. You had to go to school to play these games. Um, he uh, took a lot of cues from uh, Plato RPGs such as Oubliette and DND, capital DND. Um, <clears throat> and really, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. The Apple II was this great opportunity to. It really was one of the first desktop PCs. It was a computer that actually fit on a desk rather than took up a whole wall or a room. And, uh, you know, that that is kind of something that was, that was fun to write about in this book. Uh, the first chapter deals with uh, what magazines, I think Byte coined the phrase, the holy trinity of PCs. In 1977, we got the, the Commodore PET, the Tandy TRS-80, which people somewhat affectionately like to refer to as the Trash-80. And, and then the Apple, too. So, you know, kind of like you said, uh, instead of having to go to school and, and then sign up for time to use these computers, you could just uh, write your own software or, or buy software and play them on, on your Apple II or other PC at home. So, but PCs were such a luxury item in yes. the late 70s, early 80s. So it, in the book, it lists an Apple II was $1,300 <laughs> in 1980. Yeah, and I was just calculating that as adjusted for inflation. That is four thousand dollars. Okay, it, it, it is an Apple product. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I remember back in the nineties, uh, there were our, there were PCs that were 
in the $2,500 to $3,000 range. And that was pretty common. I mean, I don't think people can really wrap their mind around just how expensive these PCs were and just how hard it was to actually get to them. You had to be a mega hobbyist to even get hold of an Apple II. You really did. And for a lot of developers and consumers, it was kind of a darned if you do, darned if you don't situation. If if you really wanted, the Apple II was almost unanimously considered the best, the cream of that crop of the Holy Trinity. But it was very pricey. However, if you skimped and bought a TRS-80 or a PET, sure, you had a computer, but no one was really developing games for it because the Apple II... Sure, you, you were paying around uh, around $1,300, but what you got <clears throat> was the opposite of, of the type of products that, that Apple has sold really ever since the Macintosh, which was you got uh, an open box. You could pop the hood. You could put in more memory. You could put in cards to add hardware such as modems and printers. And so developers flocked to the Apple II because uh, not only, you know, it, ha- it had an integer basic baked into memory, so... A lot of people forget that when computers came out, you couldn't just go into a, re- a retail store and buy games. There were no games. Nobody had computers, so you had to write your own. And the Apple II made that possible. Everyone who owned an Apple II could take it out of the box, set it up, turn it on, and immediately start writing code. So if you had an idea for a game you wanted to play, you really just had to write it and sell it yourself. And uh, I even talked to um, <clears throat> Doug and Carrie, uh, Doug and Gary Carlston, the co-founders of Broderbund. Doug got his start in programming on mainframes, but his first PC was a TRS-80, and he made some games that did moderately well. But he said as soon as he got his hands on an Apple II, which he could not afford, he borrowed his aunt's, and as soon as he ported the games over, they started selling exponentially more because more people had that Apple II. So what you're saying is that we can basically thank Steve Wozniak for kind of the dawn of personal PC gaming because... He was the one who pushed really hard at the outset to make the Apple II a kind of modular, open-ended box. It was always Steve Jobs who wanted it to be much more closed, much more, I, I want to say, bespoke. Yes, <laughs> he, he did. And you know what? The interesting thing is that there are a lot of slants on that story that kind of villainized Jobs. But Jobs and Wozniak worked so well because they each did what they did best. Jobs was concerned about aesthetics. He had a lot of input into the design of the the case of the Apple II, which was very elegant and sleek for the time. But he was also trying to think of the bottom line. Even though it was expensive, he wanted to to make something that was as cheap to manufacture and sell as possible. Whereas Woz, Woz was uh, a hacker. I mean, even the Apple I was a, was a do-it-yourself computer. You didn't buy a computer and just plug it in. You had to assemble it piece by piece. And so Waz was the one who said, you know, I want, I want eight expansion bays, Job only, Jobs only wanted two. But Waz said, no, if we have eight, people can add in more parts. I'm telling you, this will be a huge selling point. Uh, and after that, you know, when Jobs created his own division within Apple to create the Macintosh, uh, that, was a, that was a closed system. You couldn't easily just pop the hood and, and upgrade it. Um, Almost every developer I talked to said the reason they developed for the Apple II, the reason they did kind of dig through the couch cushions to find every cent to to buy it, was that they loved the idea of being able to extend their system. And you couldn't do that with the PET or the TRS-80. So whenever we get into one of these deep dive research projects, 
we always, I feel, kind of end up learning something new or gaining a lot of new insight. For example, <laughs> I just spent a whole lot of time thinking about Fallout New Vegas because I literally <laughs> just posted a big making of interview with Obsidian, which, by the way, you should go read right now. I, I'm going to go read that as soon as we're done. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. What did you learn? Uh, what what kind of stuff opened your eyes? So that actually uh, gives me an opportunity to talk about my primary goal in writing this book. Uh, you know, the Apple II launched in, in 1977, which is over 30 years ago. And so, unfortunately, a lot of pioneers for games like Load Runner and Escape from Castle Wolfenstein had passed away. So my goal in writing this book was, okay, I, I know that the Apple II and its games, such as the Oregon Trail and, and We're on the Road is Carmen San Diego. I know those roads have been traveled, but if I if, if every game I write about, I want to talk to a developer uh, who who I can actually talk to, because otherwise I felt like I ran the risk of of writing a book that amounted to regurgitated Wikipedia articles. I wanted, even if I learned one new morsel from everyone I talked to, that was justification for me to do this. Um, really what I found out about was I, I really love digging into the origin stories behind my favorite games. Um, I found out that where in the world is Carmen San Diego didn't start as a detective game. It was supposed to be a cops and robbers game, hmm. but, uh, internally at Broderbund, uh, Gary Carlson, the co-founder and who, um, so Doug, his brother, was kind of the business guy. He got out of programming and just uh, handled all the business stuff. But Gary still really liked design. And he took Dane Bigham, uh, Carmen's programmer, whom I also got to speak with, aside and said, you know, the cops and robbers thing is okay. But growing up, Doug and I really liked to play trivia. Whenever we would go on vacations as we were driving, our parents would make up little trivia games. And so we think that we could make a trivia-oriented detective game and also uh, – broker a deal to include a world almanac with every copy of the game. And Dane was like, well, that, that sounds kind of like, you know, what we now refer to as edutainment. It doesn't sound as fun as my cops and robbers idea. <laughs> and he said um, his first royalty check disabused him of that position. He was totally on board with, with Carmen uh, from that point forward. <laughs> and, and what I really liked about Carmen as a kid and, and the Carlson's actually said this was the goal was, uh, I played World in the World as Carmen Sago on an Apple II because my grandmother was a, an English and reading teacher, and so I'd use uh, her computer, and she got the almanac with it. And so I was sitting there at my computer, and I wasn't thinking, oh, man, I, I'm learning right now. This is so boring. I was playing a game, but I felt like a detective because I'd get these clues, and I'd page through the almanac, and I, I felt like I was was tracking down uh, Carmen and her and her vile henchmen. Um yeah, the that other... was the problem with education back in the day. Education games <laughs> back in the day was that they forgot that they were supposed to be making games. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. wrote about Oregon Trail in this book, and actually that was a game that I played a lot when I was in elementary school. It's from the Minnesota Educational Council, which, of course, is my home uh, home state. But Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, obviously the brilliance of that game was that they let you do fun things like go hunting and kill all the animals because why not? <laughs> or have the tombstone with your friends on it. Yeah, or your teachers or your pets. That became a game in fourth grade. Uh, my uh, classmates and I would play that in Apple II and we'd put in our, our least favorite teacher's names in there so we could kill them of, of dysentery or drown them when we tried to ford a river or something. Um, 
And, but that was that was interesting. What I learned there was, you know, I knew that Oregon Trail started as a text-only game made by three substitute teachers, but I didn't realize how layered it was. They said, you know, the hunting game, because it didn't have graphics, you would have to type in hunt as quickly as possible. And they said what they would notice is that when they took this to class, and there was a line out the door of students and teachers lining up to play this computer game. The concept blew people's minds. But what they noticed was uh, the class would elect democratically the fastest typer to type hunt. So they said, well, now it's too easy. So they would go through and they added code to have the game choose uh, to, to, to randomly select a word to type in, like hunt, bang, pow, and that kept the kids on their toes. But they, they also, the kids did end up learning more about democracy. They would elect the best typist. They would elect uh, whoever could, was the best at crunching numbers to kind of keep track of their of their income and how much money they had on supplies. It was really interesting. And the kids didn't think of it as learning. They just wanted to succeed at the game. And they, they just could kind of took democracy into their own hands and, and kind of came up with a crew of, of the people who were best at each facet of Oregon Trail. So the Apple II oh, yeah. was home to Wizardry. It was home to uh, R- Richard Garriott's games. Uh, what are their kind of significant RPGs uh, can we thank the Apple II for? Um, Bard's Tale and, and Wasteland. But indirectly, those games were on Apple II, but by the time uh, they released, uh, most consumers had moved on to better PCs, such as the, the Commodore 64, namely, which I think is still like the best-selling PC ever. Um, but definitely Bard's Tale and Wasteland because, you know, those versions were first and then, and then the others, you know, the, the ports came after. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, not directly related to RPGs, was Prince of Persia came out in 89. And by that time, uh, really the only people still using Apple II were teachers in school systems because the computers and the software were cheap. So you'd yep, have them in every yep. classroom. That yeah. was me. That was me too. <laughs> And uh, Prince of Persia was actually dead in the water. I think over the first first few months, it sold maybe 7,000 copies. And uh, so Jordan Mechner was just despondent about that. But Doug Carlston said, nope, I believe in this game. So he kept the marketing department working on it. And that game became a success because of a version made for a Japanese computer. It had much better graphics for the, the backgrounds and the characters. And that version was ported to the Mac, and that's the version that made people sit up and notice this quote-unquote new Prince of Persia game. And, uh, you know, in researching the book, I went back and played all these games. And I was amazed, especially at Prince of Persia, how how good it looked and how fluidly it moved. And I just had to keep reminding myself that I was, in fact, playing an Apple II game. I couldn't believe it was so good. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Mac came out in, what, 1994 or 1985? Uh, yeah, I think, I think it was 84. Yes. Okay. And by then the Apple II was already considered a little bit outdated. Uh, I mean, it was still the best selling Apple computer at that time. And mm. Steve Jobs, or sorry, Steve uh, and Wozniak felt just super underappreciated because they were toiling away at the Apple II, but Steve Jobs wouldn't even give him a shout out apparently. So it really blows my mind that, People were still making games for the thing by 1989, right? I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're only to the we're at a point now where computers can last a long time, but I'm trying to it, it's almost kind of hard to fathom that Sorry. 
um, it, it just goes to show the amount of, I would say, influence that the Apple II ultimately had. And in a weird way, I feel like the Macintosh might actually be a little overhyped in that regard because it didn't actually sell that well. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, it, it, it felt like a step back because the first model of the Macintosh was black and white, whereas you had the Apple II GS, which actually had quite a bit of memory. I think they were measuring in the megabytes by that time and color display. So even though the graphics uh, were rudimentary compared to the Mac, you still had uh, you still had full color graphics. Yes. Um, um, well, it's funny, you, you mentioned it, it kind of made me think, um, I, I, I looked up very early on in my research, I saw that the Commodore 64 was the, was the, it remains the best selling PC. And I thought, you know, it's probably been since the 80s when we could think of PCs as these individual platforms, because now like you have a PC and I have a PC, but they're probably completely different. Whereas back then, PCs were almost like game consoles. Like the Apple II was a known quantity in the same way that the the Super Nintendo was a known quantity. And you can say, oh, well, the Super Nintendo is the, you know, the best-selling console of this generation. But now you can't really measure PCs that way. They're, they're kind of just Humpty Dumpties. Everyone has different pieces and parts. Yeah, they, people, uh, people measure their computers by GPU now. You right. know, are you an AMD computer or an MD, NVIDIA user? Probably yeah, you're an NVIDIA it. user. <laughs> Yeah, probably. If you're playing games, you're an NVIDIA user. So a lot of people who listen to this podcast are JRPG fans and are probably thinking, yeah, yeah the Apple II, whatever. <laughs> Can you give them an idea of what the Apple II meant for them? You know, the Apple II, the RPGs on the Apple II uh, directly led to console RPGs, uh, JRPGs, such as Final Fantasy and Secret of Mana, because... The idea of, of party-based systems is something that was uh, conceived uh, in uh, Wizardry and then later on uh, kind of uh, refined in, I think it was Ultima 3 especially. Um, and th that's actually something I set out to do with every chapter because I knew a lot of people would, would understandably take that perspective. Like, what do I care about these moldy oldies? Well, moldy at the end of every chapter... Yeah, moldy oldies, the, the platters that matter. You hear <laughs> that, Sony? Moldy oldies matter. Yeah, that's right. They, they do. I, we need more, more backwards compatibility, more old games. But I, that's something at the end of every chapter I say, okay, so we talked about, we talked about uh, Ultima 3. We talked about Prince of Persia. But here is how, why those games are relevant today. Because, because uh, you know, modern RPGs, uh, such as the Final Fantasy series, uh, can trace their lineage back to Wizardry and Ultima. Because uh, do-it-yourself games <clears throat> like Little Big Planet and Mario Maker trace back to Pinball Construction Set. Because platformers trace back to, to Prince of Persia. Uh, even, uh, you know, I, I know Donkey Kong came first, but Prince of Persia had uh, verticality, uh, which is something that was kind of a big deal for the time. So that's, uh, I definitely took pains to say, okay, here, here are these old games, but here's why they still matter and why you can, how they influence today's games and today's designers. The thing that I find really fascinating about that era is that you had people like Richard Garriott and Brian Fargo and the people who made so many of these uh, roguelikes and things like that. They were college students and in the case of Brian Fargo, I think he was like 17 when he made yeah. <laughs> when he made Bard's Tale. I mean, it really blows my mind to think of what people were able to accomplish back then 
without really any sort of development tools. And we're only just now, I feel like, getting coming full circle back to the point where unified development tools like Unity and things like that are allowing people to make pretty good-looking games with a minimum of programming knowledge. Whereas back then, computers were so new and so complicated and you really had to be kind of self-taught in a lot of this stuff unless you happen to be going to school for it. And to think that these kids, really, and they were kids, were coming out and making these games. And not only games, but games that became all-time classics that continue to hold up to this day. I mean, Brian, like Bard's Tale and Wasteland are both held up as a couple of the best games ever made. It completely blows my mind. It, yeah, I, I loved <clears throat> I loved hearing about their humble beginnings. You know, Richard Garriott was one of the first success stories. That, that, that's another thing I learned. A lot of people would make games and then just kind of go on with their lives because there was there was only nominally a games industry at this point. People weren't looking at it as a career. A, a lot of these kids, because they were kids in high school or college, they would make games and then, you know, turn to pursuing more serious careers. Uh, Richard Garriott was one of the first um, who he, he didn't strike it rich overnight, but he was very quickly making five, six figures making these games. And yet his 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 breakout hit, Acalabeth, uh, which was the predecessor to Ultima, was sold in a Ziploc baggie <laughs> hanging from a pegboard. You know, uh, there certainly weren't 100, 200, 300 dollar collector's editions back then. Uh, everything was so, so modest and humble and, and do it yourself. Um, Bill Budge was inspired to make Raster Blaster, his first pinball game on the Apple II, because he and his friends at, I think he worked for Apple at the time, they would go to a pizza parlor and play pinball, and he's like, okay, you know what, just for fun, I'm going to make a pinball computer game uh, for these guys to play. But one of his restrictions was, at that time, Apple II's basic was integer basic, which means it couldn't calculate real numbers, which is pretty... It makes math-oriented games such as pinball and billiards pretty hard to make accurate. So he just rounded. He just used integers and rounded, and nobody really cared because the novelty of playing a pinball game on a computer was well, the novelty was novel. It was it was such a <laughs> such a big deal, and so cool. And you know that's kind of a <clears throat> a through line. One of my themes is that uh, limitations breed creativity. If you don't have a lot of resources, you have to get creative to to realize your vision. Talking about Richard Garriott, his career is fascinating, but it makes me a little sad that he seemingly isn't in the best place uh, in terms of the industry right now because he had this career arc where he went from, frankly, kind of a a young genius, right, Mm -hmm. to, you know, Lord British, one of the most respected people in the entire industry, the maybe the forefront of PC game development still making total hits with like ultimate online and things like that in 1997. And then there was that total fiasco with NCSoft in the mid to late two thousands. And then now he's making a kickstarted uh, online MMORPG called shroud of the avatar, which mm-hmm. frankly, no one's really talking about. And right. uh, a lot of people consider to be, well, the last I checked was still pretty buggy and still pretty basic, and he is demoing it himself on show floors. And I'm like, 
I'm sure he's doing just fine for himself, but uh, I it makes me a little sad to be perfectly honest. Sure, it's you know a, a lot of these guys are in a weird place, and I do touch on uh, Kickstarter in the book because there there was a Kickstarter gold rush. I'd say it really started in I think 2012 with um, Double Fine's adventure game, and then of course Brian Fargo bought back the rights to. Uh, uh, Bard's Tale and, or Wasteland came first and Wasteland 2 was this huge Kickstarter success uh, I think it really can depend on a developer's pedigree you know what they did then what they've done more recently but also uh, I know that I, I, I don't think I've ever donated to, to a Kickstarter campaign but covering them kind of following them uh, even I got burnt out on it. And so I, I, uh, part of me wonders, you know, Shroud of the Avatar does look kind of buggy, but I also wonder if it kind of just missed the gold rush. I will say that I have a still a, a lot of respect for Richard Garriott, and I Absolutely. admire his passion, and I admire people who manage to keep their passion over a very long time. Uh, and just mentioned that I went to Obsidian last month, and... Like people like Josh Sawyer, you know, are still really into games and still really enjoy talking about games and the art of making a game. I think the difference between, say, Brian Fargo and Richard Garriott is that Brian Fargo became a businessman at a certain point. He, because he was running Interplay from a business side and he was raising money and everything, he just came to really understand that side of the business. And when it came to time to start in exile entertainment he was able to hand off so many of the day-to-day duties of actually making games to the next kind of crop of high-level developers all while never really losing his appreciation for the medium it's just that he understood the business side right whereas i feel like richard garriott and his heart of hearts i've met the man is still a hobbyist He, he absolutely is yeah he's still that kid who's making games because it's fun to make and he has these really big ambitions and ideas and he really wants to make something amazing but maybe his eyes are a little too big and what he's trying to make isn't necessarily going to come off that well because it looks kind of outdated frankly sure you know i think i think on the one hand the image of of uh, richard garriott lord british in the flesh uh, demoing his own game on a show floor could be construed as kind of sad. On the other hand, I think he's the sort of personality that might thrive on that. He might consider, you know, that having come full circle and, and he's he back a showman. to... He, he's a showman. And he's also, he's like, okay, you know, this is how I started. I was demoing these games. I was the one pushing, you know, selling myself. So I'm, I'm back to doing that. I can do this. But I think you're right about Brian Fargo. I think that a, a lot of developers have to... I, Scott Miller from Apogee and 3D Realms was the same way. He, he was very frank in, in, in talking to me for a project that uh, hasn't been announced yet, but he said, um, you know, I was, a, I was a decent programmer, but as soon as I had money, I realized that I'm not going to, to, to make Apogee success by writing my own games. I'm going to hire the people who know their stuff. And Brian Fargo, as you said, is great at delegating. He, will, he has the money and, and the eye to find people who can, who can carry projects and make them a success. As always, the game develop the game industry is always about what's next. And while retro has become more and more important over the past few years, it uh, it has a tendency to chew chew up uh, the old guard and spit them right back out unless they can change and evolve and adapt. 
But one thing that has remained just kind of constant over the course of the entirety of the history of the medium is just the influence of Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that you can really feel that most acutely during the, the days of the Apple II. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think because <clears throat> one thing I love about, about retro games and writing about retro games was, you know, in, in 2017, uh, a lot of AAA publishers, you know, your Ubisofts, your Electronic Arts have the resources to just create ultra realism. You can look out your window and it probably doesn't look as real as something you could see in one of their games. But the Apple II was interesting because... <clears throat> Uh, the graphics in, in many cases were rudimentary. I mean, uh, wizardry was just vector graphics, just walls and, and floors and ceilings made out of lines. But uh, what it did was it, 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 it did the hard work. It did the heavy lifting. You know, no longer did you have to roll die and, and uh, dice and, and calculate, you know, hits and saving throws. The computer did all that, and you could just completely immerse yourself in the game. So really, Dungeons & Dragons kind of became the engine chugging away under the hood and letting players just enjoy the gameplay and, and their imaginations. Yeah, and I think the kind of people who played Dungeons & Dragons in the early 70s were nerds. <laughs> Maybe, I've heard that, yes. And a disproportionate number of them wanted uh, were interested in PCs and uh, technology and video games because they're already gamers. And that when it came time to make their very first game, what were what were they going to do? They were going to go back to their experiences with two things, token and D&D. And that is how we got so many early RPGs. And that is where we are now. It is just reverberating through the entire industry. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I think I think it is interesting that a lot of these people probably never even crossed paths, but they had, I mean, you're exactly right, they had the same sort of influences. They they did a lot of reading, probably, you know, Lord of the Rings, they played D&D, and they were also in a position to get their hands on computers, and I mean, you're exactly right, they thought, I want to make a game, what am I going to make? Well, I'm going to make something that will calculate my, my dice throws for me, <laughs> and we'll build from there. So what it came down to was that the Apple II just happened to be in the right place at the right time to become a highly influential platform in the very earliest days of gaming. Because as you said, it was kind of the cream of the crop of personal computers back in the early 80s, late 70s. And as a result, it just happened to provide a home for a lot of uh, top level early designers. It, it did, and especially the effect on hardware the Apple II had can't be understated. It's it's almost ironic that the Apple II uh, had a big influence on on PC hardware. The the whole kind of you know treat your PC like a blank slate and slot in any components you want. Whereas future Apple products were you know look don't touch nothing to see here move along. Uh, yeah, I mean it was in the right place. It was at the right time, and if you could come up with the right sum, then then you could buy it and really just have this bottomless well of games because you could play games, you could make games. This this was the the first computer that really was this was the Swiss Army knife of technology tools. You could do anything you wanted with it. And now here in the year 2017, we are getting more iPhones, which are have tons of features that we absolutely do not need. <laughs> and by the way, they're taking out the headphone jack because why would you want to have the most useful uh, hardware standard ever? 
Uh, I think because thinner, cat. It must be thinner. I think at this point, I am done with Apple products. Yeah, no, I, I am too. Honestly, I, I don't want a phone that is as as thick as a sheet of paper. I think we only need to be so thin. I, I miss the headphone jack. I want the headphone jack back. Yeah, as soon as they took it out, I was. That was pretty much it for me because I sure wasn't going to get a freaking dongle that I was going to be guaranteed to lose just so that I could plug in my very expensive headphones. Yeah, same. <laughs> Alas. All right, David, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, you can get Breakout, how the Apple II launched the PC gaming revolution. Uh, it is actually out now on Amazon, if I'm, if I'm correct. It, it's out now on Amazon. Uh, the, I guess the official release date is the 28th, but I had people messaging me saying that there's a chip and some people are posting pictures online. So I guess it'll be in stores on September 28th, but you can order it from Amazon right now. Know your roots. This is, uh, as always, it has a lot of great insight into really the history of the medium. And if you want to know where your favorite games came from, and more particularly, no matter what kind of RPG fan you are, JRPG, computer RPG, whether you're playing Fallout or you're playing Final Fantasy, whatever, I mean, this is kind of where it all began. So this is a good place to look. David, thanks for coming on the show, as always, and we'll have you back on again. Thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. Okie doke. Thanks so much. Um, if you could just send me a download link from Dropbox or uh, Google Drive, one of the two, that'd be great. Definitely. And I know you're so busy, so thank you again so much for, for doing this. I, I was just looking forward to talking to you again. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate the platform. Uh, yeah, no, Um so you're just still continuing to focus on CRPGs and, and that kind of stuff. You got any other interesting projects that you might want to talk about on the podcast at some point? Yeah. Um, I just, earlier this week, I think, the days are kind of bleeding together. Uh, I'm promoting a few books right now. I have a book on Shovel Knight coming out from Boss Fight Books next year. But the, I think the big one that would interest your audience is... Uh, Earlier this week, I revealed the cover art for Stay a While and Listen 2. I'm going to try to kickstart that. Oh, never, oh, have you been working on that done, for years now? Yeah. Well, what happened was um, kind of like Valve. I, well, I can't count to two. Valve can't count to three. But um, I I wrote uh, first this fantasy novel, got the first one published. was like, great, I need a break. And then I did Stay a While and Listen 1. And I, I'd worked on both of those for so long. They needed a break. The funny thing, Stay a While and Listen 2 has been done uh, I just have wanted to do other things. I needed palate cleansers. <laughs> so um, I finally got, I still get emails about it like every week. And I'm like, you know, I should probably just kind of put that together. And I want to try kickstarting it because I've never done that before. So I want to see if I can if, uh, kind of effectively pre-order, have people pre-order the book. We'll see if that works. Godspeed. Okay, Nadia, I mentioned before that I really like theme teams when it comes to our uh, perfect party, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's evergreen. It totally and is. We had a lot of fun going through and putting together our perfect parties. And what I mean is being able to choose a character from any RPG that has ever existed, Western, Eastern, doesn't matter, and creating a party and some of the ones that we've gotten are themed parties and one of my favorites are ro the robot party the robot party was great yes the robot party was great well tp is back at it again 
and he has created a five-character cute and cuddly edition party. Aww. All right. Okay. Are you ready for this one? All yes. Right. Party leader. Can you guess who the party leader is, Nadia? I'm going to say Mog. No, it's not from... It's not from Final Fantasy. It is from Pokemon. Oh. It's Pikachu from Pokemon Yellow. The leader of my team is not just a cute character. He's one of the most iconic characters in all video games. And what's not to love about a chubby electric mouse with red cheeks? I always did Can't, love Pikachu. I can't tell you how excited I was in the first time I walked out of Pallet Town with a little yellow furball following close behind. Of course, his sassy personality only really shines in the TV show, but he's still cute enough in his glorious Game Boy Pixels to be my leader. Number two, Nadia. Mallow from Super Mario RPG. That's not a bad choice. He has electricity. He has, I think he has healing uh, healing abilities, if I'm not mistaken. The first time you meet him, Mallow is an adorable, albeit rather pathetic character. (laughs) He's a goofy, clumsy, anthropomorphic cloud who's prone to crying and failing in general. Yes. But despite his knack for bad luck, it's his resilience amongst his failures that makes him lo- so lovable. And let's not forget that this little cloud person is convinced that he's actually a tadpole for most of the game, which is <laughs> enough to make you say, "Ah, bless his little puffy heart. Yeah, like I said in my review of uh, Mario RPG on the site uh, for SNES Classics, uh, someone teach this cloud child the basis- basics of genetics, please. <laughs> <laughs> Number three is your favorite character of all time, Nadia. Mog? Ketchy from Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> That's not Mog. He, he rides on a Moogle, but... I mean, it's a weird-looking Moogle, though. Yeah, I've never seen another Moogle like that in the series. Have you? It's like, yeah, it's a big, fat Moogle. Do they exist? Like, elsewhere no, in the series? not to my knowledge. Uh, it's a really deformed Moogle. By the way, Final Fantasy XII had the best-looking Moogles by far. Oh, my God, they're so cute. Oh, the... Like I said, I relate to the one that's... There's one in this uh, in the airships that you take from place to place, and he's kind of trying to pull himself over the counter with his mm-hmm. hands, and I'm like, oh, man, I feel that, Moogle. But from his theme song to the way he walks, everything about Ketchy is adorable. I also think a little cat riding a goofy plush Moogle doll is one of the more creative ideas for a character in all RPGs. In spite who he really is, the party member of Ketchy is one that at least doubles the effective cuteness level of your team when he's added... TP, I'm going to take exception here. Ketchy is not that cute. You know, he's kind of freaky looking. There was, um, I, don't, I don't know if you saw that tweet I made the other day where I thought I found a perfect Final Fantasy VII image for some article I was doing. And you had Cloud, and you had uh, Sid, and then you had someone named Fuckface. And what? <laughs> and here's the thing. Since it was like doing a summon, we couldn't see who Fuckface was. And Parrish figured out, oh, I think it's Ketchy because he has a high MP count. And we're like, okay, yeah. So we had this whole mystery going on on Twitter. Who is Fuckface? And we think it was Ketchy. So there you go. By the way, uh, the current argument going on in the chat, Mallow versus Gino. Gino. Nadia. Oh, why? Really quickly. (laughs) Why Gino? Why do you follow on Team Gino? Uh, He's just a lot cooler. He's basically an angel, a guardian angel in the Mario universe, and he is just a lot better at attacking stuff. Uh, although I, one thing I did like about Malo was that you could see enemies' thoughts using one of his abilities, and some of them were really funny. All right, number four is Bo from Breath of Fire 2. No cute party. No cute party would be complete without a dog, so we dog, need to include Bo. He is a solid team member, and everyone knows there's nothing that helps you through troubling times more than a dog's relationship. From yeah. his floppy ears to his droppy, droopy jowls, 
bow fits the part and also adds some much-needed fuzziness to the all-cute team. Uh, uh, here's a little bit of trivia. The dog race in the Breath of, Wild, Breath of, the Fire, Breath of Fire series are called Grass Runners. Oh, really? Yeah, and grass Runners, eh? is half Grass Runner. <laughs> All right, and number five is Boko from Final Fantasy Tactics. Last but not least, Boko the Chocobo adds some speed, mobility, and feathers to our party. Yes. Although he's rather unremarkable in battle, he's the only monster in the game who has something to say when you try to dismiss him so I can never force myself to kick him out despite his bland skill set. He's a member of one of the cutest RPG species, plus his name even rhymes, making him a worthy addition to our adorable team. One thing I always loved about Chocobos is that they're usually one of the first summons you get in Final Fantasy games, so they really help you out in those early hours. That non-elemental kick to the face. (laughs) I I love uh, Chocobos, and I feel like Chocobos... The presence or lack of presence of Chocobos and Moogles really define Final Fantasy games. Mm -hmm. When you see a surplus of them, you know that they are really trying to push the Final Fantasy aspect. And when they kind of pull back a little, you can tell that they're trying not to. Final Fantasy VIII is a great example of this. Instead of getting Moogles, you get Moombas, which are these little tiger things, which are adorable. And I want them to come back someday. They're so cute. Um and I asked Tabata if Moombas were ever going to come back, and he was like, what the hell is a Moomba? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is a Moomba? Maybe but not in so many words, but he was like, hey, Moomba. <laughs> but they were an important story point. They were the, like one of the yeah. links between Squall and Laguna. And they were like enslaved or something. They were enslaved, and like because they, Squall and Laguna had, they were father and son, Like that was one of the clues that the Moombas would call Laguna Squall, and they were like, what the hell, what are you talking about? But the player knew. Amazing toaster. Even Square has finished, forgotten about Final Fantasy VIII. That's not true. They sell Squall figures all the dang time. And those, those they charms. S- they the- still love to promote Squall. <laughs> they won't promote Laguna, though, because they're jerks. All right. Nadia, last week I talked about Fallout New... Well, we had Josh Sawyer and Fergus Urquhart on the show to talk about Fallout New Vegas, which has become probably the most beloved Fallout RPG ever made. And this week, I spent a lot of time slaving over this 5,000-word frickin' retrospective feature on (laughs) Fallout New Vegas, which you guys better go read, because I worked real hard on that thing. Cat disappeared for a week to work on it, basically. uh, But it's done. It's over. It's finished. It feels so good when you get something like that done. Yes. Writing, slaving over a, a big feature, obsessing over every detail. But we got a lot of real great insights into how New Vegas was created, uh, the faction construction, what they were thinking when they created Caesar's Legion, what they were trying to accomplish, uh, the companions, the NCR, uh, what Josh Sawyer wanted, wished that he could have put in the most but ended up getting cut. Uh, some discussion about Honest Hearts and Lonesome Road, which are kind of the two most beloved pieces of Fallout New Vegas DLC. Mm-hmm. We And last but not least, why this game is so beloved. And we go into all of that and more. And also we have the five best quests from oh, Fallout nice. New Vegas, complete with comments from the co- developers. So do me a favor, go read it, and hey, go share it on Reddit, because I think that the people on Reddit deserve to see this. I <laughs> okay. agree. They deserve it. 
that is my pitch for Fallout New Vegas. Hey, KC206 totally just linked it in the chat, which was All awesome. Right. Good job. Thank you, KC206. Oh, and Schlimmy wants those Octopath Traveler thoughts. Sorry, Schlimmy. We already shared them. But if you go and download the episode of Acts of the Blood God on Friday, you'll be able to hear them. Okay. Plus, I'll be writing something uh, when we're done here. So. Oh, hey. excellent. So, in response to uh, that New Vegas episode, Nice Guy Neon says, New Vegas is my favorite open world RPG made in Bethesda's mold. By Fallout 3, I was turned off by Bethesda's design, which just felt random and inconsequential. Sure, Oblivion's Dark Brotherhood questline was amazing, but I didn't see it connect in any meaningful way to the greater events going on. Mm-hmm. New Vegas is one of my all-time favorites in the RPG space because it all felt more connected and meaningful based on your actions. Bethesda's style of game has its place too, especially if you're just looking to explore a giant world and question your leisure. But New Vegas is immediately more impactful based on quest structure alone. Oh, and Nice Guy Neon also has an RPG team. Are you ready? Yes. Leader, Geralt. Tank, Rex, Dark Mage, Morgan from Dragon Age Origins, Cleric, and Fire-Wielding Waifu, Yukiko from Persona 4, and Team Pet, Koops from Paper Mario, The Thousand-Year Door. I love Koops. I have a Koops doll. It's not like an official doll, of course, but basically my husband got me like this regular Koopa stuffy thing, and a friend of ours like made a little uh, hoodie for him, and (laughs) so I have a Koops. He had a Band-Aid, but it fell off. Rai00774 also are, has a, a a team, and he and this individual says the leader is Robin from Fire Emblem Awakening. Robin is a tactician, an obvious choice to lead the party. Their powerful magical spells would be helpful in battle as well. The medic is Ness from Earthbound. Sure, he's just a child, but he can heal the party while devastating the enemy with a That's fully true. powered up Psy Rockin. The ranger is Minsk. From Baldur's Gate, five words, go for the eyes, boo. And the warrior is Naoto from Persona 4, good overall fighter. She can use her guns for a long-range attacks, and her persona can really bring the hurt against the opposition. And finally, we have Link 6616, leader Adol. Everyone likes him, good with many weapons, and flash guarding is very good. Yep. Mage, Nino, fight, Fire Emblem 7, powerful magic, great evade, everything goes boom with no scratches. Healer Rosa from Final Fantasy IV, one of the best white mages out there, and the fighter Noah from Legend of Gaia. That just reminds me of Nadia. We totally forgot to talk about Ease Eight. We did, and um, oh but God. I did write impressions for the site. Yeah, so I think that we might have to table those until next week, unfortunately. But I, so. I suppose that you can give really, really quick thoughts on what you think of Ease Eight. Uh, basically, it's. Um it's an ease game, which is which is good in its own. Like it's uh, it's very it's fast, it's frantic, it's fun. Uh, the skills are a lot of fun to use. I, I found the characters to be funny and and fun, and I like the story. Although I have had people tell me, "Weren't you bothered by the localization? It's very rough." And I I didn't find it rough at all. But the only other ease games I've played were like six and um, I think uh, Oath and Felgana. And I you didn't, didn't play seven. It. I haven't played seven yet. I think it's out on PC. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's out. I meant to play it, but I didn't really get a it chance. It just came out on PC. Like yeah. it was a relatively new thing, which is good because it was only really available on the PSP before. Yeah, you're right. So I, I should give that a try. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I think it's really good. And if you like ease games, you will like it. Speaking of Monster Hunter, getting marooned on an on an island with lots of monsters to fight. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And a lot of them are like the really like the bosses are these really cool giant lizard things, and I'm into dinosaurs and stuff, so. 
Well, sorry for not having more Ease 8 impressions. We were a little overawed by a Project Octopath Traveler, we but... Were, weren't we? We'll, we'll, we'll circle back to it next week. We will, and definitely. we'll hit it. For now, Axel Bloodgout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Please do me a favor. Subscribe, rate us, leave a review. If you are enjoying the podcast, if you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a positive review. It gains us much more visibility yes, on is. iTunes. Many ways to follow us. You can follow here on Twitch if you are enjoying this show. Hey, do me a favor. Subscribe to our Twitch channel. We we stream every Tuesday and Thursday at around 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we like to play some pro uh, pro evolution, uh, PUBG, or we play our we play various competitive games. We may play Mario Kart 8 at some point. Really if I could get everybody to play Smash Brothers, we would totally do that. But they're just afraid that <laughs> they're just afraid that I'm going to totally like take them out. You, well, you know you that's going to happen. <laughs> I die. That's you. why. Uh, but yeah, we stream quite a bit on Twitch these days, but also follow us on Twitter at USGamerNet and Facebook at USGamerNet. And hey, Nadia, you're at Nadia Oxford. I'm at the underscore catbot. We post this podcast every Friday and we post US Gamer Podcast every Wednesday. And this week on the US Gamer Podcast, I was kind of not there. Yeah, uh, It was you and Mike and Katie, and uh, one of the words that I got was, was it, don't step on my waifu, or sorry for stepping on your waifu? <laughs> I was yeah, like, we, what? <laughs> we talked a little bit about cosplay, and I talked about uh, the time I cosplayed as San from Princess Mononoke, and uh, I couldn't see very well on my mask, and this was at the Toronto Comic Con, and I stepped on some guy's body pillow, and it was on the floor, and I said, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I stepped on your waifu. And he wasn't amused. I thought it was funny. <laughs> uh, and I also argued with Jeremy Parrish about Metroid Samus Returns. He's not. He wasn't really feeling it. That's but interesting. in fairness, he wasn't to the best part. Oh, well. There you go. <laughs> yes, he wasn't to the second half of the game, which, in my opinion, is awesome. And just completely nails everything I want out of Metroid 2. So I'm I look waiting. forward to his thoughts. I'm waiting eagerly for this. Yes. So go subscribe to the U.S. Gamer Podcast, which comes out every Wednesday. Review it, rate it if you're enjoying it. Uh, tell your friends, because we always like to have more. We All right. friends. As always, we'll be back next week. Thanks for giving us a really lively chat. We had a lot of fun uh, talking with you, hanging out with the fans and everything. We'll make sure Thank to do you. this again. Yeah, we should. Not we before too long. We should keep doing this more often. And if you really liked it, you know. Make your voice heard. Leave a comment on the show notes. Leave a note on Twitter or something like that. And tell us your thoughts. And of course, keep sending in your perfect RPG teams because we love reading them. Yes, <laughs> they're a lot of fun. All right. For Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. We'll see you again real soon. Until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.